You're listening to the Mill Sunday School Podcast. Okay, now you guys can hear me. How's everyone doing this morning? Good. Well, I'm really thankful to be able to come again today. Um, I know you guys probably missed Joe being in here. Um, I think it's been awesome for him to have a little bit of a break, but I'm so impressed. I know he's not here right now, but you can tell him I said this if you want to, but I'm so impressed with what he does here every week, and I'm really impressed with all of you guys coming and wanting to learn more about the Lord and grow in your walk with the Lord, and I think it's just incredible. Um, So it's good to be here today. Joe asked me, he's like, we really haven't had anyone talk about hell yet, and so he said, I was wondering if you would be interested in talking about hell, and um, (laughs) I was like, well, it's not really something I spend a lot of time thinking about, but I'll give it a go. I'm willing to give it a go. So that's what we're going to talk about today. We're going to talk about hell, but before we do, uh, I want to pray for us. So Heavenly Father, I thank you for today. I thank you for the ability to come here and to have healthy bodies that work and the ability to to worship you and to know you and to do so freely. And Lord, we just pray now that you would open our hearts and our minds to hear what you would have to say to us this morning. Father, we just acknowledge that we are dependent upon you and that we want to learn from you whatever it is that you would have to share with us. And so, um, Lord, we just invite your presence here today. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, well, a couple weeks ago, for those of you who weren't here, I'm going to just give a brief recap because a little bit of what I'm going to talk about today fits in with what I talked about two weeks ago. Um, We talked about heaven. We talked about the practical application of heaven in our lives. Um, The idea kind of came to me because heaven is not something that we usually talk a lot about, uh, I find anyway. I find that the most often when it comes up is either when someone has died or possibly when you're talking about salvation, sharing the gospel with someone, if you want to go to heaven um, as opposed to going to hell, those seem to be the times when heaven comes up the most. Uh, But as I started studying scripture, and we talked about this a couple weeks ago, I realized that Jesus talked about heaven all of the time. He was very heaven-minded, heaven-focused. And so we talked about that. We talked about what does that mean for our lives, Um, that Jesus came to bring the kingdom of heaven to earth. Now, that doesn't mean that he came to make earth into heaven. All of us know that the place we live today is is not heaven. I certainly hope it's not. Um, this life can be very difficult at times. And so he didn't come to make earth into heaven. He came to bring principles and ways of living that are quite contrary to the way that the world thinks and the way that the world works. And we as Christians, our identity is rooted in that. We're called to live in a way that is different than maybe what would come to us naturally. So that's what we talked about a couple of weeks ago. This week, I want to talk about hell and the practical application of hell in our lives. And I think we actually maybe talk about hell less than we talk about heaven in our society. Um, There's a few instances where I can think of that we often hear it. One is when people are angry. (laughs) It's often used as an expression of anger. Uh, Around Halloween time, we'll see little kids dressed up as devils with the little red horns. That seems to be a time when... Maybe we think about things that are dark a little bit more often. Um, And then again, I think when we talk about salvation, oftentimes hell is something that comes up. And so uh, 
I think we talk about it even less than we, we would otherwise. And actually, and this is sort of interesting, Jacob and I, we, we went on our honeymoon. We actually went to hell on our honeymoon. <laughs> I uh, have a picture, and I don't know if you guys will be able to, to see it if Patrick pulls up the first picture. Uh, we were in Grand Cayman Islands, and we had arrived there. And, you know, you go in these shops or grocery stores, things like that. Everywhere we went, there were these postcards that said, have you been to hell? And we were like, what in the world is that? And, um, and I thought, we were just like, well, it seems like a place that we should at least go see what they're talking about. So this is uh, one day we had a, a soft top Jeep that we had rented. This is us on the road to hell, if you will. You can see the sign up there. Uh, and, and by the amount of advertising that there was for it, it seemed like this was the place on Grand Cayman Islands to be. I mean, it just, they made it sound like it was this huge, like, big deal and all these jokes about it and postcards and T-shirts. And so we were like, let's check it out. So we started driving to try and find it. We're driving, 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 getting lost. It happened to be the hottest day that we were there. So it's like 90 degrees beating down on us. We're in the middle of nowhere. And finally, we, we find this little shop it's a little gift shop that has just about every possible hell related paraphernalia that you could ever want and we we go up to the door and patrick if you can pull up the next picture this is the guy who owns hell he owns the gift shop and uh yeah he spent way too much time thinking about that he is a man who his whole life is defined by hell it was actually fascinating Almost every single sentence he used, he used the word hell in some form or another. Um, he has built his whole livelihood off of, off of this idea. It's very interesting. So we kind of laugh about that. We think it's funny. Um, but what actually is hell? The Bible talks about hell a lot less than it talks about heaven. Uh, but it does definitely reference it. It talks about the idea of judgment. It talks about the idea of eternal fire or punishment. The Old Testament, if you were to do a search of scriptures, uh, BibleGateway.com is one of my favorite tools for studying the Bible. And if you were to do a search, you would find that hell only appears in the New Testament. It doesn't appear in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, it's referred to as Sheol, which is sort of like a grave. It's a, it's a pit. It talks about people going down into a pit. In the New Testament, hell is only referenced 14 times. So it's not something that's talked about a whole lot. But I started to do some research, and I was just interested. What do, you, what do scholars have to say? I was trying to beat Joe Kirkendall a little bit. <laughs> I'm not as smart as he is. Um, and I found it interesting. There's a few people who say that hell will be the end of the soul, that, at, that, that when judgment day comes, that the soul will cease to exist. Now, all of us know or probably have an understanding that we don't just have bodies. We have souls that live inside of our bodies and that it is our soul that will go to heaven. The Bible talks about us receiving a new body. And, and so this theory would say that, that hell actually is the end of the soul. But that is widely discounted. There's not really any scriptural belief. It's just an idea that's out there that you might encounter if you were to look. Some people question whether hell is a real place or what will actually happen there. But the thing that scholars agree on most... Um, across the board is that no matter what hell will be like, no matter where we will, what, where people will go, if it's an actual place, where it is, what kind of punishment will happen there, they all agree that it is total and absolute separation from God. That it is the end 
of any sort of hope of being united with God. So it's total separation from God. Now, I think for me, that's a little bit hard for me to get my mind around what that might actually look like. And I would just be interested in knowing in this room, if you feel comfortable raising your hand, how many of you here became Christians when you were 14 or older? How many of you are relatively? Okay. All right. How many of you have been Christians since you were little kids? Wow. Okay. Me too. I mean, I I first gave my life to the Lord when I was five years old. So I think for me, this is a little bit of a difficult concept to get my mind around. But I think it's important that we take time to think about what that means for, for people that we know and that we work with and who are not believers because it has huge implications for them. So let me just give you a few ideas. I started thinking about what would it mean to be totally separated from God? I think people who have become Christians a little bit later in life, those of you who raised your hands, you might have a better idea of what this is like because you remember what life was like before you found the Lord. You remember how you, how you tried to cope with life or what that was like before you found the Lord. For those of us who have been Christians forever, it's kind of like, well, the Lord has always been a part of my life. It's hard for me to imagine what it would be like to not have that. So let's, let me give you a few ideas. Imagine that you had a, you were, had a temptation towards something, but there was no way to get out of it. There was no escape. Your only response was you had to give in. Imagine if you had a struggle in your life and there was no hope for anything about it changing, no wisdom or insight that would make it better. Imagine absolute hopelessness for anything that was terrible, having any chance of becoming better. Absolute hopelessness for changing something about yourself that you don't like. Imagine no one committed to loving you when you are at your most unlovable. Imagine being totally alone. Those are just a few ideas that came to mind. And I think right now, and the interesting thing for us is we can think about that and try to imagine it. But right now, God still plays a very active role in the earth. Even people who don't believe in him, he still plays a role in their lives. The Bible talks about how God is the beginner of life. He's the creator of life. That he's the one that sustains the earth. That the reason why we're going to walk out of here today and have a sun that's beating down on us and have air to breathe and all of those things is because God sustains that. And the Bible talks about how the Holy Spirit is at work in the earth, drawing people to himself, working with people, even those who don't know him yet, that he's pursuing relationship with them, that he is somehow involved in their life. But imagine if all of that were to go away, if there would be no hope that there could be any sort of change, that the decision you made meant absolute separation from God. Jesus, I think, experienced this. When he said uh, on the cross, he said at the very end, right before he died, he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And if you understand the definition of forsaken, it's to give up something held dear, to leave altogether, or to abandon. Jesus experienced this on the cross when he died and carried the weight of the world because his hope was, God's desire was, that, that as many people as possible who would choose would never have to experience that the way that he did. Imagine bearing the whole weight of the world, the mistakes of all of the world, and then in the midst of it being abandoned by the only one who could help you carry it, 
Can you imagine the willingness to give that up? I think it's important for us to think about this, not for our own lives, not because we need to be afraid of that happening to us. We don't need to be afraid of that happening to us. We know that we're, we're going to heaven. We know that we have relationship with God now on the earth. We know that we have the reality that we will always enjoy relationship with God, that there's not going to be a point where that's going to end. But for people who don't know him yet, that is the reality of which they live. That at some point, they will experience total and complete separation from God. So what does that mean for us as Christians? I think it means this, that hell is a reminder that every human being is, at their core, a spiritual being who chooses their relationship with God. C.S. Lewis wrote it like this. He said, there are no ordinary people. This is from The Weight of Glory. It's one of my favorite books of essays by him. He says, there are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. Nations, cultures, arts, civilizations, these are mortal, and their life is to ours as the life of a gnat. But it is immortals whom we joke with, work with, marry, snub, and exploit. Immortal horrors or everlasting splendors. So the idea being that every single person we encounter is a spiritual being who at one point either now or in the course of their lifetime, will enter into relationship with God where they will never experience separation from that, or at one point will die, and if they are not a believer, if they're not a Christian, that they will experience permanent separation from God. The interesting thing is, is that everyone at this point, on some level, and I'm not really talking about maybe people who are totally unreached, but for sure in our culture where there's so much availability to know truth and to know about Christ, that at some point we are all, at this point, everyone is choosing what their relationship will look like with God. There, is their relationship going to be one that's not restored or is it going to be an unrestored relationship? Are, we, are they choosing to not engage in relationship or are they choosing to engage in relationship Every single person is a spiritual being who's making a choice at this point in time of how they're going to relate with God. So I want to look at, briefly, the life of Paul um, before we get to some practical ideas for us because I think Paul is someone who understood this idea. I think he understood very well that we are all spiritual beings. I think he understood the difference of what it meant to be in right relationship with God, to be in restored relationship with God, and what it meant to be in a distanced relationship with God, to be out of alignment with him. The reason why I think he understood that this is where people are at is if you go to Acts chapter 17, verses 22 through 28, he's in Athens, and Athens was a place that was full of Back in the day, it was full of idolatry. It was full of worship. And I know Aaron has talked about this before, that everyone worships something. Even if it's not God, we worship something. And Paul really addresses the idea that we are all spiritual beings and that we're, we're looking for relationship. He says here in, in uh, Acts 17.22, he says, Men of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious, For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, 
to an unknown God. Now what you worship as something unknown, I am going to proclaim to you. And he goes on to to talk about who God is. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by hands. And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything because he himself gives all men life and breath and everything else. From one man he made every nation of men that they should inhabit the whole earth and determine the exact times for them and the exact places where they should live. God did this so that men would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. And so Paul is basically saying to them, look, I know that you are spiritual. I see that you're spiritual. I know that you're a spiritual being. And, and what I'm going to proclaim to you now is what is truth. I want to make known to you what you maybe didn't know before. Paul was a man who gave his life to sharing the gospel in order to rescue people from hell and restore them to relationship with Christ. All of you know probably his encounter with the Lord, um, that he was actually persecuting Christians. And then along the road to Damascus, he had this encounter where he was blinded and then went, was led into a town. And, and after he was led there, a man came and shared with him. Because um, when he was blinded, they, he said, what's going on, you know? And, and, and Jesus said, who is talking to me? And he said, the one that you're persecuting. So he has this massive encounter, this extremely real encounter with Jesus. And, and it, was, it was an absolute shifting point for his life where he, he understood, and it, and it changed the way that he chose to live to the point where he used every possible opportunity he had to share truth. The man tells at the ends of Acts that he was shipwrecked, bitten by a snake, and he turned those things into opportunities to share the gospel, to share the truth. Um, he traveled all over the world. Sometimes he would spend several years in a location for the sole sake of sharing the gospel and preaching, um, sharing about out of his own experience what Christ had done for him. He's the man who wrote in 1 Corinthians 10, verses 31 through 33. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Do not cause anyone to stumble, whether Jews or Greeks or the church of God. Even as I try to please everybody in every way, for I am not seeking my own good, but the good of many so that they may be saved. He said in 1 Corinthians 9, 19 through 22, Though I am free and belong to no man, I make myself a slave to everyone to win as many as possible. To the Jews, I become like a Jew to win the Jews. To those under the law, I become like the one under the law so as to win those under the law and so on. To the weak, I become weak to win the weak. I have become all things to all men so that all, by all possible means I might save some. I do all this for the sake of the gospel that I may share in its blessings. He had an incredible passion for sharing his relationship with Christ. He's the one who said in Acts 20, 19 through 24, and I think this reflects well his heart. Let's see, 20, 19 through 24. I served the Lord with great humility and with tears, although I was severely tested by the plots of the Jews. You know that I have not hesitated to preach anything that would be helpful to you, but have taught you publicly from house to house. Uh, I have declared to both Jews and Greeks that they must turn to God in repentance and have faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, compelled by the Spirit, I am going to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there. I only know that in every city the Holy Spirit warns me that prisons and hardships are facing me. 
However, I consider my life worth nothing to me if only I may finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me, the task of testifying to the gospel of God's grace. This is the man who wrote that the greatest gift of love, that it is for freedom that we have been set free. He wrote that we are children of God that have been lavished on by him. Why did he... Why was he willing to do this? Why was he willing to go to such lengths? It's because he understood what it meant to be separated from God, even to be in a place of persecuting those who understood relationship with God. And then he understood what it meant to be restored, to be restored to complete and full relationship with him. And I think he wanted to offer what he himself had experienced Sometimes I think we view sharing Christ with others as a duty or an obligation. I think the reason why Paul was able to endure so much, why he was willing to travel hundreds and thousands of miles, why he was willing to be beaten, it talks about he was beaten, I think, three times almost to the point of death. The reason why was not because he was felt obligated or pressured or under some sort of duty to perform. It was because he understood what God meant for his life, and he understood what it meant for others. If they, if they didn't hear the truth, he understood, okay, what would total separation from God be like? What would that mean? What would that mean for my life if I were to experience that? I know what it is to have relationship with God. I know what it is to walk with him. What would that be like for someone to have lost all hope of that ever happening? And I think he understood that God so deeply desires for us to know him. He so deeply desires relationship with him, for us to have relationship with him. That Paul tapped into it. He tapped into that heart and he said, okay, this is worth it to me. God, I am so in love with you. I'm so amazed at what relationship with you looks like. And I'm so aware of what it means and what it takes to be restored to relationship with you. I want as many people as possible to have the opportunity to choose. I don't want people to end up in hell and not have the hope of choosing relationship with you, to be totally separated from you. So what does this mean for us? If if hell is final separation from God, I think that there are people that we work with and know and go to school with who are experiencing many hells around us all the time um, that are, are experiencing separated relationship with God. They're heading down one path, and I think the question that we can ask and the role that, that hell would play in a practical way in our life is what can I do to redirect them? If they're heading down this path that one day will, will mean total, final separation from God, how do I redirect them to head them on a path that would mean restored relationship with God, intimacy with God, understanding him and knowing him. So I want to talk about that. The first, I think, is to cultivate intimate relationship with him. It's very difficult for us to track with God's heart and with what he's doing if we aren't connected with him. I want to tell a story. I was in... um, Thailand a year ago on vacation, and uh, we were in Bangkok, and while we were there, uh, for those of you who don't know, Bangkok is known, Thailand is known for huge issues with sex trafficking, 
lots and lots and lots of prostitution there. And my friend who lives there, I was visiting my best friend, she lives there. She said, you know, for the most part, every time you see a young Thai girl with an older white male, it's, it's a prostitution situation. Occasionally not, but for the most part, that's what it is. And there was one night where we went to this hotel. It was this awesome hotel. It had a restaurant on the rooftop that overlooked the whole city. It was amazing. I was with three of my really good friends, and we were excited to have a night out. And so we're up there. We'd ordered our food, and it's just beautiful. It's warm and looking around and just kind of observing people. And I noticed, I saw, well, there's a young Thai girl with an older white guy. And I was like, oh, man. And then I looked a little bit further, and there was an older white guy, white guy with a young Thai girl and an older white guy with a young Thai girl. And, I mean, there was probably a couple hundred people at this restaurant, but there were so many older white men with young Thai girls. And I, I was watching, and I was watching them. They're in this incredibly beautiful place. It's, it's amazing. It's romantic. They can't talk to each other. The, the girl doesn't speak much English. The guy doesn't really know how to communicate. And you could just tell. You would look at him, and you could just tell. It's painfully awkward. And my heart just started to get heavier and heavier and heavier. <laughs> and I just, I said, Lord, I started praying. I was like, Lord, I don't know what, this just seems so discouraging to me and dark and heavy and oppressive and sad. And I, I started to feel hopeless. I was like, how in the world is it possible for change to come about in a situation where, in a city where this this way of living is so deeply ingrained. People come to that city for that purpose. How, where do you start? How do you even begin to make a difference? And I was just praying. And so clearly the Lord said, Noel, it is where things are darkest that my light shines brightest. And the things that to you would seem so hopeless, so beyond hope, so beyond despair... Those are the places where I can actually show up the most clear. Because people are at a point where they're in such desperate need. There's a verse that talks about this in Acts 26, verse 16 through 18. Paul is telling his testimony here. And he tells what the Lord told him. And I think this is fascinating. He says that when, when he was going through his salvation experience, the Lord told him, he said, Now get up and stand on your feet. I have appeared to you to appoint you as a servant and as a witness of what you have seen of me and what I will show you. I will rescue you from your own people and from the Gentiles. I am sending you to them to open their eyes and turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God so that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. I think the only way that we can have hope and not become discouraged by what we encounter in the world around us is if we are connected with what God's heart is. This is God's heart, that, he, that we would bring light to dark places. This is what he longs for. This is a deep cry of his but he doesn't want us to do it just because we feel like it's something we have to do. He wants us to be so 
deeply and closely connected with him and with what his heart is, that we're able to track, that in those moments where discouragement comes or it seems hopeless, that we're able to say, Lord, what do we do with this? And he's able to answer us. This is why I send, this is why I send you to places like this. Because it's where things are darkest that my light shines the most. Philippians 3, and I referenced this a couple weeks ago, but I think this speaks to Paul's heart, and this ties in with this idea of knowing him. He says, But whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them rubbish that I may gain Christ and be found in him. I think beyond whatever we choose to do with our life, this is what God wants most from us. He wants us to know him. If that's what he wants for people who don't know him, how much does he want us to know him so that we can communicate that to others? So the first is cultivate intimate relationship with him. The second is to rely on the Holy Spirit. The Bible talks about at the end of Matthew that the Holy Spirit was given to us as a way for us to fulfill the Great Commission. That is what God has given us, the tool God has given us in order to be able to share with others and to have the ability to fulfill the Great Commission. Acts chapter 16, again to reference Paul's experience. says here, Paul and his companions, they had traveled. Essentially what had happened is they're traveling around. They're sharing Christ. They're going into some places and not, depending upon what the Holy Spirit leads them to do. So they passed uh, by Mysia and went down to Troas. During the night, Paul had a vision of a man of Macedonia standing and begging him, come over to Macedonia and help us. After Paul had seen the vision, we got ready at once to leave for Macedonia concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. I think in order for us to be effective in really understanding and what hell, the implications of hell for other people and what it means to reach out with what we've been given, we're, we have to be dependent upon the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the one that's going to change people's hearts. There's no way that we can do it on our own, and God's not asking us to do it on our own strength. So I think the second key is to acknowledge that we are dependent upon the Holy Spirit. There was a boy, and I think all of us can do this in different ways. It's very simple. It's when we're in a situation and we're not sure, how should I respond? Maybe you're talking to a coworker, and they're venting about their problems, and you know that they don't know the Lord. You just inwardly are like, Holy Spirit, I just pray you would give me wisdom. I pray you would give me the right words to say to this person right now. Maybe you're talking to someone at school, and you're talking about religious ideas or the difference that they have, and you say, okay, Lord, you're the one that brings change to people's lives. Holy Spirit, I pray you would work in this person's heart. I pray that you would guide my words, that you would show me how to love them with your love. There was a boy in Cambodia where I went um, this last summer, and we went to this uh, place, Betsy would remember it, but and Leah as well. It was an orphanage for children who had um, physical deformities. A lot of times in other countries, when you go to a they, they don't value life the way that we would value life here. And so if a child is born with a deformity, their response is to, is to get rid of the child. That Maybe they don't have the capacity to take care of the child. So this place is full of kids who have all different kinds of physical handicaps. 
And you go into this place, and the girls who were with me can testify to this. It just is heavy. It feels like, oh, my gosh, what in the world? Um, there's not enough workers, so the kids are just laying on, on mats everywhere, just kind of laying there, and that's what they would do all day long. Whereas here, we would have programs and ways to interact. And I look at those kids, and I think, okay, what is the possibility for them to, to know God or to experience God? And there was this one little boy he still, I still think about him often. And he was just laying there. I think he was maybe 10 or 11 years old, but he looked like he was five. Malnourished, laying there, couldn't walk. And he would clamp up his mouth so that he couldn't eat. And I just sat down next to him, and I was like, I have no idea what to do. Again, it seems hopeless. Lord, I just pray you would show me what you want me to do. Holy Spirit, I just pray you would give me wisdom. And so I pulled the little boy into my lap, and, and I, just, I felt like the Lord was like, I want you to pray over him. So I just started stroking the side of his face and saying, Lord, I'm so thankful that you are the giver of life. I don't understand why this boy's body is broken, but I pray that you would reveal yourself to him. I don't know how much he's capable of understanding, but God, I pray that you would help him to know that he's loved. Help him to know that he's cared for. Help him to know that, that you see him and that you know him and you know the hairs on his head. Help him to know that you created him for freedom. Help him to know that you came to bring light into a dark world. Help, I pray that you would cleanse the memories that he's had if he's been abused in any way. God, I pray that you would bring healing to him. God, I pray that he would, he would I just pray the love of God would just wash over him. You know, this little boy's eyes just started to fix right on mine. They had been kind of going all over the place, you know? And his mouth started to relax. The power of prayer and the power of being dependent upon the Holy Spirit. And I recognize not very many of us in situations today are going to encounter something of that extremity. But I do know that we work with and, and go to Walmart with and are surrounded by people that they may not have physical handicaps the way this boy did, but they are just as desperate emotionally and spiritually. And what if when we saw those different situations and we, we felt a need there and we're connected with the Lord and something prompts in our spirit, if our response was, Holy Spirit, I just pray you would reveal yourself to that person. God, I pray that they would come to know you. God, I pray that they would want relationship with you. It's powerful. It changes things. The third thing, the third way that we can defeat hell around us is to build relationships. Jesus did this all the time. Everywhere he went, he built relationships. If you read through the book of Acts with the story of Paul, you will see that. Why did he go somewhere and spend a year and a half to two years? He went because he planted himself in a place. He was a tent maker, so he worked for a living, and he would share the gospel so can you imagine all the different connections as he built a business, all the different opportunities and venues that he would have to share with people? He built relationships. There's a girl who uh, came in my office, it was quite a while ago, but she had been coming to the mill, not a Christian, and uh, had a lot of knowledge about different religions, a lot of knowledge about faith. And interestingly enough, we started talking about heaven and hell. She said, well, I'm afraid to go, I'm afraid of heaven and hell. I thought, well, that's interesting. Most people would say that they're afraid of heaven, or I mean afraid of hell, not afraid of heaven. 
I've never met anyone, actually, who said, yeah, I'm kind of afraid of going to heaven. I said, why is that? She said, well, I'm afraid of God. (laughs) And if heaven is spending eternity with God, that just sounds terrible to me. (laughs) I... And, and I said, well, you real, and we just kind of started talking, and I said, well, you realize that by not making a choice, we, I would actually say that you are making a choice, and the Bible would talk about that. And she's like, yeah, I just, 